Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the State of Florida Sports Podcast, presented by the USA Today Network. Here's your host, Tim Walters. It's a sign that summer break is almost here. Football fields at high schools across the state are bustling, and spring games are just days away. Sure, spring football doesn't produce the most entertaining of games, but it's still the last high school football we'll see until August. Today, we bring in our USA Today State of Florida high school sports and recruiting expert, John Santucci. He's been studying high school football around all of Florida's 66,000 square miles, and he's here today to drop some knowledge on our football-adoring state. Hello again, everybody. I'm Tim Walters, and thank you once again for joining me on the State of Florida Sports Podcast, powered by the USA Today Network. This podcast utilizes our Florida Sports Network of beat writers, columnists, and some special guests to bring you up to speed on the most important sports topics. Our Florida network consists of 17 news sites that encompass the state. We encourage you to subscribe to your hometown newspaper, and of course, this podcast, to help support the incredible journalism done by our talented staffs. If John Santucci shows up at a school to check out its football team, it's likely there's something special going on at that school. John knows who are the players and teams to watch, and he goes out to see them with his own eyes. Let's bring in John now to hear what he's been seeing. John, welcome back to the podcast. What's up, man? Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a while, probably too long, but hey, spring football is here and things are going on around the state over the next few weeks and many teams are going to be looking to reload, of course. You know, others will be rebuilding some of these uh, teams that looking to repeat as state champions and things. So uh, who are some teams you'll be visiting over the course of the next few weeks and when you go out to spring football games and practices, what are the things you're looking for? Because I know you're not an actual huge fan of the actual games themselves when they occur. Um, it's not that, okay, let me go back. It's not that I'm not a huge fan of the game. It's that I don't put a ton of stock in the game. So when I hear people like, oh, this team won this spring game, I'm like, okay, well, the other team ran a vanilla offense and a vanilla defense and, you know, was trying out guys at different spots. So I, I just don't personally put a lot of stock in spring game results other than, you know, if this four-star defensive tackle goes up against this four-star center and he's getting destroyed the whole game, that I do pay attention to. So as a team, though, I don't I don't really focus on the result. All right, you asked me where I'm going first. Uh, I spent last week a little bit in Orlando, a little bit on the Treasure Coast. Uh, I spent a day in Palm Beach getting ready today. Tomorrow, Wednesday, I'm going to be in South Florida, going to some of the better schools down there, Cardinal Gibbons, uh, Miami Central, Columbus, Miami Norland, Miami Northwestern, probably Chaminade. Uh, next week, I'm in Tampa and Clearwater for a couple days, and I'm going to hit Orlando for some spring games. And then last week of May, I'll be all up all over the state going to scrimmages and spring games. And as far as what I look at, you know, I think 
my first look is the guys that I know about. You know, if I'm going to a school with a four-star wide receiver, the first thing I want to do is look at the wide receiver, especially if I haven't seen them before or I haven't seen them in a while. Then I'm just trying to get a good, um, you know, understanding of who the coaches think, you know, could kind of be next on their list. And I, I also, I want to hear how certain things sound. And and I know that might sound weird, but I've t- I know I've told this story before. I don't know if I've had this conversation with you, but I was at a school a couple of years ago and they had a, a three-star defensive lineman. And when he would go hit the pads, it just, sounded different than everybody else i mean you could you could tell when it was his turn with your eyes closed and there was another guy so he went and i I remember i was talking to a coach i think from iowa state and we were talking about this recruit and we both turned our backs to that drill and then we heard the noise again and i'm like oh my gosh i missed him he went again no it was somebody else and this kid, you know, you turn around, didn't know a lot about him, underclassmen, but he's 6'5", 260 lineman. And all of a sudden, now I'm aware of him. And now the other coach said the same thing. He's like, wow, that sounded really different. So really good players, when they do things, it looks different. It sounds different. It stands out. So you're you're almost hoping to catch one or two of those guys that you didn't know about before, didn't know a lot about before. And, and they really, you know, impress you with, um, quite frankly, with the sound or with the way they do something. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And it's not just in football where you see that, you know, I I don't know how much professional golf you see, but if you go out and watch somebody like Scotty Scheffler hit a ball off a tee, it just doesn't sound like that off the average human being's tee. So, you know, I could see that with football. I could see that with basketball and other things like that. So, you know, certainly, uh, so that'll be cool to see what you come up with. I mean, it, it must be fun traveling around the state. And, you know, speaking about, how the state is broken down now, you know, last year was the first year where the FHSAA had divided the state's teams into rural and metro divisions. So, you know, I wanted to get your take on that, how you thought that worked out and, uh, you know, how that will continue into 2023. And if I remember, wasn't that only like a, maybe like a two year, um, you know, tryout and we'll see what happens after that. So do you think that's going to continue? So just kind of give us all your knowledge on what you know there. Okay, let's start with did I like it? And and I have to preface everything I'm going to say by this. Before I started covering the whole state, I covered the Treasure Coast, which which is a suburban area. I just want to preface that everything that I'm going to say certainly is is formed by, you know, having covered that area for so long. I do think suburban metro was a good starting point. I don't think it should be the ending point. It's not perfect because, you know, look, there's not a perfect system for 500 plus schools in a state that is this large. I remember one year I was covering Vero Beach in the regional final and they were playing Deerfield Beach. And I think Vero, it was a really good Vero team. I think they were undefeated and they had, I want to say in their program, maybe three or four power five guys, which for a school like Vero Beach, having that many guys in the pipeline, that's a, that's a really good year for them to have that kind of talent. And they played a Deerfield beach team that I think had 28 power five guys on the roster. Now where Deerfield beach is, they're in a really good spot because obviously it's South Florida, which can draw from a lot more by, by, by uh, comparison, Vero beach, I think is Indian river County at, at last time I looked was the 31st largest County in the state of Florida. And you know, that area there's not, they can maybe draw from uh, St. Lucie County. They're not drawing from anywhere else. It's pretty isolated. 
Deerfield Beach is right on the border of or very close to the border of Palm Beach County, which is the largest by size, and Broward County, which I think is the second largest by population. So you have a large area that you can draw from if you are Deerfield Beach. Vero Beach, you don't. So that gap seemed miles apart talent-wise when I went to that game, and, and no surprise, Deerfield Beach, you know, beat Vero Beach pretty handily. So I remember just feeling back then that like, look, why are these two teams competing against each other just because the school size is the same? Because you, you're you not drawing from the same kind of uh, areas. You, I mean, Vero Beach, I think you and I did the math one time. I think they could draw from an area of approximately, I, I don't know, I want to say like maybe 80,000, including St. Lucie County. And Deerfield Beach is drawing from an area of close to 3 million. So which one should be better? And are those two really on equal footing? So the geography matters a lot. That being my rationale, I feel like it was a really good move. Here, here's the other thing I really liked about it. If you look at the state semifinals from two years ago, they were very lopsided games. I think the average margin of victory was 18 points per game in the state semifinals, which ideally these are the four best teams left in in that class and this year i think that number dropped down to 11 and i think 10 or 11 of the 16 games were decided by 10 points or less i like to see good competition I, i've been really frustrated at times going to the state championships and and those being the worst games i see all year yeah and how about uh this lasting beyond after this year so, sorry, I, I, I knew you asked me more than one question. The idea is that it was a two-year, basically, we're going to give it a two-year stamp of approval. I don't see them going back to just eight classes. So now we have nine. We added that uh, four suburban, four metro, one rural. I think what you might see is you might see an additional metro class. I've heard that from quite a few coaches um, in the metro areas, and their idea, their rationale is you have five classes that are rural slash suburban because they all fit that demographic, and then you have four metros. So why don't we have a fifth? And if you look at the way that those schools are broken up, you know, you have a school, I think, of like 1,500 playing a school of, of like 400 and 2M. 2M is, you know, a lot of people last year compared it to the SEC because you've got Miami Central, you've got Miami Northwestern, you got Miami Norland, you got Booker T. Washington. By the way, they're all in the same region. You got American Heritage, you've got Cardinal Gibbons, you've got a lot of, you know, Reigns, I believe, is in 2M. Some really good schools all over the state that are in that class. So I think you could add a fifth in Metro if, if the numbers work um, and you're still dividing them evenly. I think the other thing that ha is going to pick up a lot of momentum, because I know a lot of the Metro coaches are interested in this, is, and I forget the exact wording, I apologize, basically they would take eight teams, eight to ten teams at the end of the season, and you would be the, the best eight to ten Metro, best eight to ten suburban teams, and you basically would have like a UEFA Champions League in the playoffs where – the 10 best teams would no longer, regardless of what class they're in. So you could have all 10 teams come out of 2M in the Metro. Um, but basically, they would play for their own state championship. I, I, again, I forget the wording, but I know that 
the FHSA is really keen on this idea. And then everybody else would be in their own, would stay in their current classification and you'd play for a state championship. So just using Bulls for an example in Jacksonville, which also is in 2M, if Bulls was the 11th best team in the state on the rankings at the end of the year, they would be the number one seed in 2M if they were 11th overall. But if they were like eighth overall in the state, they would go to basically this Champions League and they would not compete for a 2M state championship. That won't happen this year, but it could happen for the 2024 season. Yeah, I really like it. I mean, you mentioned Miami Central, and a couple of years ago, they played Merritt Island in a state championship, and you know they totally dominated them in a in a you know state final down there. And then Coco High, you know, perennial power, who won a state title under the new uh, Metro and Suburban this past year, they they you know didn't really stand up much of a chance against Cardinal Gibbons two years ago. So it's good that some of these teams that, as you mentioned, they can't draw from the type of talent pool even as good as they are. And, uh, you know, now they're getting their chance to stand out and watch the other big teams duke it out. And of course, those metro areas aren't too thrilled about it because they would rather win eight state championships than vie for four or five. So, uh, you know, I I like it a lot better. And I think some changes are coming, like you say, but I'm glad they're going to keep with that. So, you know, let's move on now to, uh, you know, some of the players that we're going to be looking at in the 2023 season who graduate in 2024 there's going to be, you know, there's some highly recruited players in the state. So I just want you to touch on a couple. Tell me about some of the players you'll be watching and, uh, you know, who are maybe some of the most coveted players in Florida. All right. Well, hands down, at least to me, the number one player in the state is Jeremiah Smith, a wide receiver from Chaminade, 6'3", almost 200 pounds. He's, he's really added a lot of muscle to his frame over the last two years. He's committed to Ohio State. I, I don't know if that if he's even movable on that. And uh, Ohio State's done such a great job recruiting wide receivers in Florida the last couple of years. Uh, last year, especially, they got three wide receivers from Florida. Uh, Brandon Ennis, Carnell Tate, Bryson Rogers out of Wiregrass Ranch. Jeremiah Smith, to me, is the total package. In fact, I told I was talking to a Power 5 coach uh, this past week. And he said, you know, who do you compare Jeremiah Smith to that you've seen? I said, there's there's just not a lot of good comps. He's really that special. There was a play last year in the state championship game against uh, Clearwater uh, Central Catholic where uh, he's double covered. The ball is basically thrown to the only place he could catch it, which is out of bounds. And he leaps up and grabs it with one hand and gets both feet in despite being double covered. It, he just makes phenomenal plays. It, He's probably his stats are mis, are a bit misleading. He had over a thousand yards. Think he had over fifty catches last year. But they have such a loaded team. Quarterbacks headed to NC State. The other wide receiver, JoJo Trader, is is fourth on our top one hundred in the state. He's got Miami and Florida State and Georgia and Ohio State and everybody else offering him. They've got really good underclassmen. They've got a running back committed to North Carolina. Uh, I had one coach tell me last year that played them that it's the best high school offense he'd ever seen. And their quarterback, Cedric Bailey, told me, I'm very aware of how many times guys touch the ball. So if Jeremiah Smith has caught four passes in a row, he might not look Jeremiah's way, even though Jeremiah is open, because he wants to make sure that the other four and five star receivers can touch the ball, too. So you wonder if if Jeremiah Smith was the only, you know, elite receiver on that team, how many passes does he catch, you know? So, and that's the thing, when you start looking at stats, that, that gets really tricky when you talk about recruiting. 
the number two guy on our list is is um, David Stone, defensive lineman from IMGs. I think is he's down to kind of LSU, Miami, Michigan State, Oklahoma, Texas A&M. Just a massive body, gets in the backfield quickly. You know, really good, really strong. IMG, this might shock nobody, has, I want to say, four of the top 10 players on our list. Ernest Willow is a guy that I'm really impressed with, an edge rusher. You know, he's uh, he's number three on our list. Uh, Ellis Robinson, the fourth, committed to Georgia. Cornerback, our top-rated cornerback in the state, right ahead of Charles Lester from Riverview, another outstanding cornerback. And then uh, Jarek Gibson, the running back out of IMG, we've got at uh, number eight. So uh, four of the top eight players in the state are at IMG. I think they had 12 players overall on our top 100. But uh, some of the guys I really want to see, one of them's T.A. Cunningham. I should see him tomorrow as we're filming this. It's a or recording this. It's a Monday. Miami Central D lineman. He just transferred in from California. Outstanding D lineman. We've got him at number 17 in the state based on the film we've seen and the people we've talked to. So uh, he he's a phenomenal player, big body. Miami Central also added Armando Blount, who's one of the premier defensive tackles in the class of 2025. So good luck running against Central up the middle or, quite frankly, anywhere else based on how good they've been. Let me see. Some of the other guys are really interested in seeing. You know, I'll tell you a guy I, I feel like has flown under the radar. Uh, we have him at, uh, let me look, I think 42 in the state. Sean Sevillano Jr. out of Clearwater Academy International. He's he's from Canada. Both of his parents are are athletes. Big body, 6'2", 300 pounds. He's got Ohio State. He's got Notre Dame. Uh, he's got all the high academic schools, Duke, Stanford. He's really a great kid to talk to. And he's one of those guys that when he gets on the field, he just flips the switch. So he can be a really nice guy. And then, you know, it, he puts his hand in the dirt and he's really nasty. Uh, in a good way. At 6'2", he's probably a little undersized for what some colleges like. But once you have the Ohio State of the world offering you, you're you're that guy, you know. And so, um, again, I think we have him a little bit higher than some of the others. He, We saw him at a camp. Chris Boyle and I saw him at a camp earlier this year, and he just shot up our board. So, yeah, th- those are the kind of guys I really like. I really like watching linemen uh, for some reason. So that's a few. I, I don't know how many names you want me to give. but uh, No, I... I think that's good. You you don't often hear somebody say, "Yep, I like linemen." It's uh, it's like <laughs> it's like saying I I like to go to the beach and stare at the rocks instead of the ocean. I don't know. It's a it's a bizarre statement there. When I go to the beach. I'm in the water. I'm not one of those guys that can sit down and just watch. But I, I get I get your point. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I was going to save this question till later, but I may as well bring it up now because you mentioned all the players at IMG, and we just saw that. You know, about a week ago, IMG sells for something like $1.25 billion to a group from Hong Kong. And, you know, they're obviously a football factory that plays against public schools. And obviously public schools can't just be sold for a billion dollars, or I'm sure our governor might try. But, you know, talk about the sale of the academy that was originally started as a tennis academy by Nick Boletari. And, you know, he passed away in December at age 91. And they were sold by the Endeavor Group, which also owns UFC, and recently purchased the WWE for something like $9 billion. So it makes you wonder if they sold it to raise some capital after that sale. But John, tell us what you know about the sale of IMG. Okay, uh, I let me say that I don't know a ton about it. I have some thoughts on it. I don't know a ton about it, though. I, I you know, once we get into the business of sport, I, I kind of take a step back uh, as far as my interest level. But 
uh, first of all, they're not just a, a football factory, right? They, they have produced a ton of really good basketball players. Their, their, their football or excuse me, their baseball team is, I'm sure has a couple guys that are going to hear their name picked in the draft pretty high. I know some of their, their girls sports are phenomenal. So they have become just a sport factory. And, you know, look, if you're at a certain level, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it gets you ready for college, I think, in a really unique way, especially for a guy who's, you know, maybe going to go to the Big Ten or, or the SEC or something, because now you're living away from home a year earlier or two years earlier. You're flying all over the country for games on the weekends, which is exactly like it is in in college. So um, and and I also know this firsthand. There was a player. Evan Neal, who was in our coverage area on the Treasure Coast, played at Okeechobee. He was outstanding as a freshman, but he was certainly overweight. I think he was about 375 as a freshman, somewhere in there. And to see the way that IMG's nutrition program helped re- reshape his body. And then he goes to Alabama, and now he was he's with the Giants. He was, I think, the seventh overall pick last year in the draft. I think for guys like that, it really helps, you know, because it, it's going to give you some of the tools you need, some of the discipline you need. Um, as far as eating or things like that. So it has a ton of value. Obviously, you're playing the highest competition. That's usually in practice because they play some schools that I don't understand what they're doing. They played that fake school in Ohio last year on TV. They played a team. I want to think I think it was called like Toronto Prep where they're up 96 to nothing at halftime last year. I don't know what they get out of those games. That's my own concern about their scheduling. But $1.25 billion is a lot of money in case, you know, you weren't aware of the obvious. So I don't know what to do with that when I see that number. You know, I don't know if that's somebody just buying it because, you know, it's it's a, a well, uh, you know, it's basically a property that they can make some money off of. I don't I don't know where the I'm just wondering how that school you know, continues to turn that kind of a profit that 1.25 billion is good, but clearly it's what they're doing is working. I'm guessing, I'm guessing they have quite a few good sponsorships. So yeah, that's, that's a huge amount of money though. And I wonder what the value is of a public school. Like what is, if, if I'm just trying to think of a random school, if Reigns in Jacksonville went on the market, like what would that fetch? Well, the problem is, is, you know, with IMG Academy, they're, uh, from what I understand and what I've read about, one year of tuition and boarding, and they're not an educational school that has sports. They're a sports school that teaches education, and it's $90,000 a year. So if you're there for four years of high school, ninth through 12th grade, you're paying out at minimum $360,000. When you go to public school, it's free. You know, obviously there are students who have no interest in sports. There are some, you know, uh, brilliant students who have no interest in sports. And there are some sports students who have no interest in learning things uh, other than wanting to become athletes. So, you know, unfortunately, I don't think you can really do an apples to apples comparison because one is a business while other is a public entity set up to educate children. So, you know, for the people yeah, who let's can, be clear, though, the guys that we're talking, I'm guessing. I, I want to be clear. I'm guessing. I've never asked the question, but I, I think you can make your own conclusions. I don't think that most of those players that we're talking about that are these, you know, elite, elite athletes, I don't think they're paying 90 grand. No, I'm sure there are scholarships and other things. I'm sure there's a lot of international things that go into it. And you're right. It's about profit. 
And, uh, you know, I don't know how many people go there, but at $360,000 for four years, you know, I, I imagine that they've done their projections and everything, and it must be worth it because that's uh, just a crazy amount of money to purchase it for. But somehow it has that value. I mean, it's like a sports franchise almost. You know, that, that costs as much as the, the Miami Marlins cost. It's crazy. Yeah, and they're probably better. Uh, that's probably a better purchase than the Marlins, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they definitely have a better chance of. I've been to IMG eight. football games and I've been to Miami baseball games and they're <laughs> Miami might get a few more fans, but it's not by a lot. And there's not a lot of people at those IMG games because obviously most of those kids are not local. But yeah, I, I would imagine that uh, as far as the the amount of people in the crowd percentage wise, IMG probably is getting more people than <laughs> Miami Marlins. Yeah. All right. Well, just a couple more questions here, John, and then we'll wrap it up. You know, you did a story recently about some changes to some rules for high school recruits. And, uh, you know, they used to be limited in their number of visits to uh, schools on recruiting trips. And now is it unlimited? Is that correct? Just tell us about the reporting on that and what some of the pros and cons of this are. All right. So the the previous rule was you had a maximum of five visits that you could take, you know, during certain windows. You can't take them whenever. And there are certain things you look, you can go on an unofficial visit anytime you want, but there's certain rules there too. Like you can't meet with a coach and they can't, they can't pay, the school can't pay for it, things like that. Well, if you go on an official visit, the school can pay. There's a certain number of people you can bring with you. Uh, there's an amount of money they can spend on you, things like that. I, I think it was reported that when um, the Manning son was um, recruited at Texas, they spent almost 630 thousand dollars over two recruiting weekends for official visits now it's not just arch manning there's a lot of them right but a lot of guys coming in and walking through but you know maybe i don't know 20 guys so depending on what your budget is i think georgia and texas spend more than just about anybody else in the country on recruiting but you were allowed to go on five visits so if you have 20 offers you have to narrow that list down to even get to five right well what this does is it says if you want to go to visit 10 schools to really make sure that you're making the best decision, go visit 10 schools if 10 schools will have you. Now, I've talked to some college coaches where they're like, if we don't think we're going to land a guy, we're not going to bring him in just for fun. Like, if we don't think we have a shot, we're not going to spend all that money just so we can walk around our campus and pretend to, you know, like it and then go home. We don't want to just give him a free vacation. So it'll be interesting more to see which which uh, players colleges bring in, there will be, I guarantee you, some colleges that go, if we can get you on campus, we think we can convince you to come here. It sounds like what this is then, John, is it's really only going to affect a smaller number of players who are going to get more visits because, you know, like you said, they don't want to give out free vacations. And if they think a kid's already visited five schools, can they really win them over? So is that kind of the feeling behind that? A little bit. Here's where I do like it a lot. If you go back two years ago, we had unprecedented movement in colleges, right? You had LSU, Miami, Florida, uh, Notre Dame, Oklahoma, USC, all these schools. And I'm sure there were many more and all the fallout, all the trickle down, Oregon, all these schools looking for new coaches. And, and by extension, Clemson loses both of their coordinators in the same offseason. Georgia loses a coordinator. All these things happen almost instantaneously. 
and the recruiting board shifts in an insane way. I want to look back really quick, if you'll just bear with me. I want to look back at the USA Today Top 100 in 2022. I know that Gabe Dindy was our number one player. He was supposed to go to, he was committed for a long time to uh, Oklahoma. And at the very last minute, he flipped, or not the last minute, but after the coaching change, I believe he flipped to Texas A&M. But I think that almost half of our players in the top 10 flipped their college decision after December 1st because of coaching changes. So when you have unprecedented movement, and we're going to continue to have that because there's a lot of boosters that have a lot of money tied up in this school and they want results. I don't mean this school. I mean these schools. When you have that and all these kids now between the end of you know, Thanksgiving break and and the third or fourth week in December are making college decisions, but they've already used all five of their visits. So now what do you do? And are you going to end up at a school that you've never even been to because you like you had a good conversation with the coach, you know? So I feel like for those kids that had already taken five visits, it doesn't matter at what level. It can be at the group of five level. You took your visits to Charlotte and FAU and FIU and Appalachian State and Liberty, right? And now all of a sudden, the coach that you were committed to at Appalachian State decides that he's going to be the you know, defensive coordinator at LSU. So now you don't want to go to Appalachian State anymore. Where are you going to go? Because you don't have any visits left. So in other words, this this just ends up being protection for those students who I already think used that's up their visits. Absolutely, what it does. And what I wonder is if, in some ways, if this will help slow down the transfer portal slightly. I, I think the transfer portal, because it's free agency, because of the way these colleges are manipulating things behind the scenes, I think that the I, the worst kept secret that many people may not know is how many of these colleges are working some of these kids behind the scenes through old coaches and whatever to get them into the portal. So I know for a fact that there are schools, I'm not going to say which ones because I'm guessing it's all of them that have called, you know, like I said, I'm from the Treasure Coast. I know that there are people on the Treasure Coast who have gotten calls saying, hey, ask this kid if he'll go in the portal because we want him. And he's at one SEC school and they want him to go to their school, which is also in the SEC. Now, it's, they can't talk to the kid directly. So they call people that he worked, that he, his trainer from high school, whoever, that they also have a relationship with and say, can you see if this kid's interested in jumping in the portal? That happens all the time. But there are also kids that go to a school where they're just not happy. And my yeah. wonder is if we have more kids being able to see more schools especially in that late window when there are coaching changes, would that make a difference? And I, I think it's worth finding it. Yeah, certainly. So it's good that it does offer that protection. I think that some things need to be fixed with the transfer portal also, and I think we'll see that in the upcoming years. But, you know, John, we're, we're just about out of time here, but I did want to give you a chance real quick. Is there anything else, you know, high school football is coming up. You've talked about recruits. You've talked about traveling around the state. We've talked about some other things. So is there anything else you'd like to get out there in front of the audience? Or, hey, just take a minute to plug your work. You know, I think some of the best work, and it was a group effort on a lot of this stuff that we did uh, during the offseason, was we took a, lo a long look at coach pay. 
um, and how underpaid most of these public school coaches are. When I say most, I mean all. We are still losing a lot of coaches to Georgia and Texas and South Carolina and Alabama and states where they're just going to pay much more money. And, and you know, we had a good friend of mine who was the coach at Ocoee, Aaron Shepard, went on the record and said, look, I, I would like to get my doctorate in Georgia. They're going to pay for me to go to school. In Georgia, they're going to I am getting a substantial raise to go from being a head coach in Florida of a program that just went to the final four to being a uh, a defensive coordinator in Georgia. I'm going to get a substantial raise just on the football side of it. I'm also going to get a substantial raise in the teacher side of it. And the retirement package is way better. So he's like, I didn't want to leave, but how do I look at my family and say, yeah, I'm trying to provide for you and everything else, but I'm going to just take a huge haircut to stay as a head coach when I can go do less work in Georgia and make a ton more money and put our family in a better position to succeed. I've had a lot of coaches tell me that in some form, just not always on the record. Florida does a horrible job paying its teachers. Let's just get that out of the way. They do a horrible job in figuring out how to pay their coaches. I know Brevard County, where you are, is trying to figure out a way to supplement some more money for their their coaches. And and that'll be a really nice test program, I think, for the state um, in in how they've done some things with some taxes and things like that. But um, the coaches are woefully underpaid in the state. And, uh, you know, we've done a lot of work on that. So if people want to go check that out, we have a map of how much each county pays. But I I just want to throw this out, too, because this is the stupidity of Florida. A lot of coaches are are unhappy about what I'm I'm going to say next as far as how it works out. The majority of schools, uh, public schools, pay their teacher or their their coaches a stipend, right? So if you're Ryan Schneider, who just won a state championship with Coco last year, you're making the same amount as a coach elsewhere in Brevard County, regardless of what that school did last year, right? So if Coco wins the state championship, they got to play 15 games, you know, 10 reg. They don't have to play 10 the regular season, but they usually do 10 the regular season. You have to win five postseason games. Well, if you're at a school that went 0 and 10 in Brevard County and you're done, you realize that that coach made more per game than Ryan Schneider did because yeah, Ryan really Schneider coached 15 play. games. Ryan Schneider coached 15 games for what, let's just say it's 4,000. I think it's a little bit more in Brevard County. Let's just say the number is 4,000. He makes 4,000 to coach 15 games, 15 weeks or 17 weeks, including the bye week and everything else of regular season and postseason practices, everything else that he has to do, all that game planning, he makes 4,000. Again, we're using that as a general number. I know the number is a little bit more there. But a coach at school X that went 0-10 and was out of the seat, their season was done. That coach made more money per game and per week than Ryan Schneider did. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion because how do they do that then? You know, where do they find extra money to pay coaches for the postseason? Almost like in the NFL, you know, you go to the postseason and you get more money. So, uh, you know, our legislature, they can't agree on anything. So I can't imagine them ever coming to terms to try and take care of these coaches. Look, each county does it differently. You know, I want to say Broward Broward County, I think, pays its head coaches like less than $3,000 a year, despite, you know, the fact that Broward County is loaded with talent. Those teams are always making a run. I mean, you've got to be in it for the right reasons. Anybody who thinks, first of all, 
you know, people can comment or send me emails or hit me up on Twitter whenever they want. But just so you know, you're not going to get anywhere with me saying, oh, they shouldn't do it for money because people want to get paid what they're worth. Like nobody, I have no problem with volunteer assistants. I think they're great people. But if you can pay some money to people who are working, I think you should. And, you know, look, again, I, I said this first because this is the order. The teachers don't get paid enough in Florida. So we, there's got to be a way to fix that. But coaches got to get paid more, too. You're talking about a football coach. Man, we're, we're kind of getting a little off topic, but I get fired up about this. Football coaches are the only ones that don't have an outlet where somebody else can coach their kids and get good coaching as far as a travel league. There are no travel league footballs. There's no, you know, there's no uh, there's seven on seven. But most of those coaches don't really want those guys playing for those all star teams most of the time. So. You know, when you're talking about, oh, I play travel baseball or I play, you know, I'm I'm just drawing a blank on what it's called in AAU basketball. You know, there's no AAU football. There's no AAU tackle football. Where in the world does an offensive lineman go to to, you know, work on their their craft in the offseason unless a coach is working with them? Who's in the weight room with these guys? Coaching in football is a year round activity. But, you know, for in some schools, you know, hey, you're making as much as the baseball coach. Well, baseball coach isn't working year round the same way a football coach is. And this has nothing to do with baseball. I'm not taking shots at them, but let's just be honest. They don't have the same responsibility. Baseball coach might might have 30 to 40 kids in the program between JV and varsity, maybe 45. I don't know. Varsity football coach, his program might have 140 kids in it across, you know, all the way down. It's the sport with the most kids and the least time off and the highest level of responsibility. They are the coaches who are literally paying for every other program. Most schools do not make money off of volleyball or golf or tennis or whatever. Football is paying the bill for all those sports. So, again, when you have one caretaker is basically in charge of funding an entire athletic program, let's just recognize that and pay them like they are doing what we're asking them to do. That, that's kind of where I fall down on that. Well, John, you ask about where can an offensive lineman learn these things. Let's open an academy, get real good at training these kids, and then sell it for a billion dollars. What do you think? I like the payout. <laughs> if you and I start an academy for offensive linemen, I don't think we're going to get a ton of people showing up. Now, by the way, and this might be a little inside baseball, so I'm just going to say this to you. You and I have worked on stories about people who have opened up shady academies for sport and it hasn't gone well. And we've had to call Homeland Security on them. So I'm not sure you and I should be the ones having this conversation. But, yeah, um, if you can make it work, I might be an investor, though. All right. Well, we'll make sure that we won't be shady and our bus will have good wheels on it that we know they're going to make it where they're going. And people would, the listeners are like, what are they talking about? It, it's a story that John did a few years ago about a real shady uh, academy where uh, their, their bus basically almost fell apart on the interstate. So we'll leave that right there, John. And That was one of the better things about Nation Christian Academy, if anybody <laughs> wants to look it up. But yeah, that was one of the nicer things they did to their students. Yeah, well, that was a heck of a story. And of course, John, your reporting is the best. We can get it on all 17 of our state websites. And a lot of your work will occasionally show up on USA Today's big high school site. So, John, I always appreciate it. 
Thank you for coming on. Oh, and before I let you go, tell people where they can find you on Twitter because you put all of your links there if they're looking for them. Uh, at John Santucci, J-O-N-S-A-N-T-U-C-C-I. All righty, there you go. John Santucci, J-O-N, no H in that, John. John, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Thanks for being here. I'm neither of those things, but I appreciate you saying it. All right. We love how humble you are. And that's going to do it for this episode of the State of Florida Sports Podcast. I'm Tim Walters. And to quote the brilliant Albert Einstein, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. I couldn't agree more. And if you want to be a genius like Einstein, join us again next time. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.